Hello, and welcome to the Wanderings Podcast, a photographer's exploration of art, science, and world culture. I am your host, Pedro Bonato, a fine art and advertising photographer based in Toronto, Canada. In this show, I talk to artists, designers, scientists, filmmakers, authors, entrepreneurs, people who are creating inspiring work in a variety of fields. I have been working as a professional photographer and as a musician for a few years, and I am often inspired by history, science, mythology, and popular culture in the photographs that I create. In this podcast, I try to go a little bit deeper in the stories that inspire me, and I hope will inspire you too. On today's episode, we go on a musical journey across many centuries and many lands, from the French-Canadian province of Quebec all the way to India, with stops in Spain, Morocco, Turkey, and the Balkans. My guest is Dr. Judith Cohen, a performer and ethnomusicologist specializing in Judeo-Spanish Sephardic songs, as well as in medieval and traditional music, including Balkans, Portuguese, Yiddish, French-Canadian balladry, and songs from crypto-Jewish regions of the Portuguese-Spanish border. We talked about the field of ethnomusicology, an area of study dealing with the relationships between people and music, and specifically about her work with Jewish Sephardic music that spread around the world. Judith talked about her first adventures in Europe as a 20-year-old, going from Spain to Turkey and back to Canada, and how that trip started her lifelong love for travel, music, and the people she encountered along the way. We also talked about the artificial divide between the so-called East and West, a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. About a year ago, I started a music and dance group called the Blue Dot Ensemble, where we explore and mix traditions from all over the planet, and Judith's work was certainly an inspiration for that project. Judith is funny and knowledgeable, and I hope you'll enjoy this fascinating talk about how music travels and refuses to respect borders, showing the common humanity shared by peoples from all lands. So, here's my conversation with Dr. Judith Cohen. Judith, welcome to the Wanderings podcast. Hello, good to be here. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, thank you for having me at your home, right? Um, that is surrounded by instruments from, I guess, all over the world, or at least a good part of it, and books and um, manuscripts and uh, all sorts of uh, interesting things. In the podcast, I interview people from all sorts of uh, areas. Your area is uh, ethnomusicology. So can you talk a little bit about what ethnomusicology is? Well, actually, ethnomusicologists talk all the time about what ethnomusicology is, and I'm not mm -hmm. sure that we have found a consensus. We argue a lot, you know, academics argue anyway. And <laughs> so I think the general idea is that the ethnos is not ethnic, but ethnos as in people. Mm -hmm. So it's people and musicology together. So we don't, we try not to do the musicology without the people or the people without the musicology. The balance can be different. You can talk more about the people and social structures, for example, and the role that music plays in their lives. Or you can talk more about the actual music in terms of music analysis and how the people relate to that. Or you can balance it. And people, typically, if they have a long career, have different focuses over the time that they're working. You know, they might have a period where they're working more with the music analysis or more with the people. But by and large, we try and balance it out. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So, like, you would say that in the field, there is, like, a wide range of people. Some people would go more into the, I don't know, historical aspects. Some people would go into even, like, instrument construction. Would that be something? Sure, that, organology. Uh, organology, okay. Uh -huh. But the, the idea is that people are always part of it. Mm -hmm. And it could be people as in individual people, as in one society or one culture or related cultures and people it doesn't really matter but people have to be there and mm -hmm. that means it doesn't matter what kind of music you're studying because mm -hmm. it isn't music as the object mm -hmm. for a while it was sort of assumed in the early days of the discipline first got its name in the, in the late 50s i mean people have been doing it for a long time but it was first called ethnomusicology in the late 50s and for a while there was more an assumption than anything else it wasn't a definition but it was a kind of tacit assumption that you were going to work with, you know, non-Western music. Mm -hmm. 
And I remember once a long time ago, I think I didn't even maybe know the word ethnomusicology. I was sitting in a class, I was sitting in on a class in, uh, in Montreal at Concordia maybe, and I said something about Bulgarian music. And the instructor said, oh, but that's Western. Bulgaria is in the West. Huh. We're not going to talk about that. Now, that was a really long time ago. Mm-hmm. And someone else said, oh, you folk singers, because, you know, I grew up as a folk singer in the folk revival in mm-hmm. Montreal. You know, we ethnomusicologists don't want anything to do with that. But that's gone. That's, that's really not mm. the case. Um, you know, you can do the ethnomusicology of discotheques and the mm-hmm. underground. And ethnomusicology and popular music studies work hand in hand. Mm-hmm. These days, very fruitfully, you can do historical ethnomusicology, um, applied ethnomusicology, which can be anything from, say, music therapy to how music is approached and in instruments in museums mm-hmm. uh, or public programs, this kind of thing. So it's really very, very wide ranging, but the key is that it's music and people together. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. That's uh, that's very interesting. At least to me, the the fu- the first thing that comes to mind is this uh, conversation about the the terminology of being like, oh, is this Western? Is this something that we we talked a little bit before when I when I got in? Is this Western? Is this Eastern? Like this, div- trying to divide into very well defined groups and trying to say, oh, this is from this place, this is from that place. As a researcher, as having seen music from a bunch of like studied a bunch from a bunch of different places how do you see this uh interaction of like east and west i know it's a big conversation but like just as a general thought about well you stuff. know that i treat it skeptically from our many <laughs> informal conversations mm-hmm. ever since i met you a couple of years ago yeah so you know that already but you know as i said i grew up on one hand in the folk revival so we were singing mostly songs in english but it was about things we hadn't done it was about the american civil rights movement mm-hmm. and we were living in canada so we were it was close and we knew about it and we knew some people who had actually, you know, been on the lines and been part of the demonstrations. But we didn't live that directly, but we were singing about it. On the other hand, I was also primarily English-speaking in a primarily French-speaking province. Mm. So when I learned French-Canadian songs as a kid, it was, you know, of the other, as we used to say Mm -hmm. in the uh, 90s, 80s Mm -hmm. and 90s. But it was ours as well. And I was Jewish, but singing songs that I learned, you know, in a society that was mostly Catholic, mm. and so on and so forth. So, from my, my whole life, it's always been about, you know, where do I stand in this? I'm always an outsider one way or another, mm-hmm. you know, or I would get, what's a good Jewish girl like you doing with all this music from Morocco? Or mm. what's a, how come you're Ashkenazi, you know, Central and Eastern European Jewish, but you're singing all these songs of the Sephardic Jews from Morocco and and Turkey and the Balkans. So all my life, I have I guess it made me think of it in a very, I don't like the word fluid because it's so in, yeah, yeah, yeah. pushing boundaries. <laughs> and I always have these terrible images of collapsing boundaries and people's hands getting smashed <laughs> as they push through them and stuff. But I, but I have grown up with this mm-hmm. assumption, I guess, that A, I belong everywhere, but B, I don't belong anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I traveled a lot from the time I was 20, but I don't have this citizen of the world thing or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, if anything, I know how to put my foot in my mouth in a variety of cultural contexts. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> yeah, know. that's good. I actually... But in terms of East and West, I mean, I just think that uh, it doesn't doesn't wash, you know. Like, I'm also mm-hmm. a medievalist. Yes. So the fir- one of the first things you learn when you work in medieval, music of medieval, what I'll call Spain for simplicity's sake, mm-hmm. you know, the old kingdom of Aragon and mm-hmm. Andalusia and so on. But one of the first things you learn is that in music terms, it was immediately, like from a, you know at least the 9th century, 10th century, a lot of influence from the so-called East. But some of the East mm-hmm. wasn't even the East. I mean, you know, Morocco, today's Morocco is south of Spain. Mm-hmm. And Spain is the West in terms of Europe. It's the westernmost part of Europe. Mm-hmm. But right away you had musicians like the fabled Ziryab, you know, coming mm-hmm. and, and changing the entire music scene in Cordova. And you had Christian girls captured and brought up as Muslim slave girls, but slave in the sense of very high level music and dance knowledge and teaching. And they would even teach the the sons of the local caliphs and so on. So there was no such thing as East and West, for example, Mm -hmm. in what was Andalusia. Mm -hmm. Andalusia. It was kind of irrelevant. It was, you know, the musical culture drew on all these different elements to say nothing of the Jews who are already living there and the 
Christians who had been there for so many years. They were natives, and they went back to the Visigoths, and you know, yeah. so on and so forth. So to me, this whole East-West thing, and the assumption that you know, Eastern philosophy is somehow on an automatically higher plane, and the West is somehow inherently corrupt, mm. you know, and evil. It just doesn't wash because yeah. humans. Uh, I mean, it sounds simplistic and kind of silly for someone who's been around for decades and is supposed to be an academic, but humans are humans. Right. And I think in the long run, you know, we work pretty much the same way. Mm-hmm. And there are people in every culture who operate on a more philosophical and or spiritual or mystical level, and people who operate on a more practical level, and people who are innately good to other people, and people who have to learn to be good to other people, <laughs> and people who never do learn it. Mm-hmm. And I really think yeah, that would... changes a whole lot. The specifics change a lot, of course. Mm-hmm. naturally. But uh, I was telling you when you were taking your coat off in the door mm-hmm. about the time when I was singing at the London, Ontario mm-hmm. Folk Festival, and I was put on the stage called Songs of the East. And when it was my turn, I sang a song from uh, a French-Canadian song from Acadie, from uh, French-Canadian Nova Scotia, and said to them, well, you know, it's east of Toronto. And the director was standing there waving his arms in front of me from the ground, <laughs> looking at the stage and saying, east, east, I said east. And when it was my turn to sing the next song, I said, now we're going to go east across the Atlantic to Spanish Galicia. (laughs) And, you know, ideally, as I told you, there wasn't enough time, so I stopped in maybe Turkey. But -hmm. had there been enough time, I would have liked to keep going east until we ended up in Vancouver and back in (laughs) London, Ontario. Right, yeah. I I think that that, that's a brilliant story. I'm glad you're able to to share this. In my work, I'm more, like, fascinated with um, the music of the Middle East. But I remember now that we got into playing Turkish music and the Persian music, from a lot of friends of mine, they're musicians, for example, from uh, Turkey, they don't consider themselves... Middle Eastern. To right. them, Turkey is different. It's Anatolia, it's a different place. And Iran is... And Iran is different too. It's Central Asia. Central Asia. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, even there are certain uh, songs that appear in many different traditions because the melodies traveled uh, and then people do their own versions of the songs. And yeah. then over time they decide, no, this is my song. No, this is my song. Well, and in fact, this... one of the first songs I did that way was the well-known song in Turkish, Iskudara Yes, yes. And... Mm-hmm. I have it actually on a CD that I did a long time ago. In fact, two CDs, I think. One that I did here in Canada and one in Spain, where I sang versions from, well, Turkey, obviously, and from Mm -hmm. Greece, and Mm -hmm. a couple of Sephardic versions, and a Bosnian Hmm. version, and so on. And a woman who made that famous or infamous semi-documentary called Mm -hmm. Whose Song Is This Mm -hmm. left out um, the Jewish versions completely. Oh, and she left out a couple of others as well. And I remember thinking, if you know, whose song is this? But at least, you know, mention some of the people uh-huh. who thought it was their song over the years. Oh, interesting. I didn't know There like are that. Arabic versions, there are Hebrew versions, it, you know. Mm-hmm. It really travels yeah, you know, it, it, as, uh, as a tune. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I, I learned about Tuskadara after I played with my group uh, Sari Gelin, which is another song that appears in um, uh, Turkish, um, Azerbaijani, uh, Armenian, Persian. And um, people have like a very strong opinion of whose song is it. So it's interesting. And then I, I learned about this uh, the, the documentary uh, on Tuskadara. And then I didn't know about the... The, the Jewish part, it's well, interesting. Well, I actually put out yeah. that CD, I think I put out one with my old, I think I did it three times, you know that? I did it mm-hmm. once with my old Moroccan Sephardic ensemble in Montreal, I think around 90, oh, was it? Oh, it was the early 90s in any case. And then mm-hmm. I did one um, with Tamar when she was only eight years old for uh, Radio Canada mm-hmm. with more versions. And then I did one on, I think the first CD I did on my own in, in Spain. Mm-hmm. But, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, I was working with all these versions of Yusudara. Right. And it never even occurred to me that it was, you know, going to be made into this documentary later on, that uh, uh-huh. she was, that this other woman was going to work on it, and it would become a cause célèbre, as uh-huh. it were. But, uh, you know, who else uses it is Jordi Saval, mm-hmm. used it in that, uh, what did he call that program? You know, the, the no. big program, Jerusalem and Peace or something. And the idea was to, to use it to show that music from all these different cultures coexisted and shared. And, and so mm-hmm. on. it's, you know, one of the, one of the shows where Yair Dalal, the Israeli 
musician with roots in Iraq mm-hmm. is featured in, in that concert with Jordi Savile and Hesperian 21. So it's really made the rounds. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, the, I'm actually very interested in that song. We'll talk later about it because uh, we want to try to do a show with <laughs> and try to record it in as many languages as we can well, find. Well, we actually did yeah. with my old... Um, Moroccan, the same Moroccan Sephardic Ensemble. We actually did a concert many years ago in Montreal, I think around 1990, in the Festival Sefarad when it was just beginning, of contrafactum, you know, the idea of using, taking a set of words and adapting it to different melodies or taking the same melody and adapting it to different words. Uh-huh. And we did a whole concert based on that. It was a very oh, cool. interesting. It was kind of like singing a research paper, <laughs> which which I actually do a lot. And like when I sing, when I do concerts, I often mm-hmm. have the impression that I'm singing my research. That's as a, as that's amazing. Yeah. But yeah, we did a whole concert that way. One of them, and we ended up with um, <laughs> with a very sacred, but um, sort of paraliturgical. Like it's sung at, at the entrance of the Jewish Sabbath on Friday nights, mm-hmm. and it's a song to welcome the Sabbath bride, Mechadodi. Mm-hmm. And we actually ended up that concert singing it to a tune by the French Canadian singer songwriter Gilles Vignon okay. about Quebec. You know, mon cher pays, c'est à ton tour, les to show that you could really do this with just about any culture. Mm-hmm. And it was based much more on the, the metrical and rhyme or assonance pattern of the song than on whether. You know, these cultures even knew each other or got along. Oh, wow. No, that's that's really cool. Yeah, I'd love to, to hear that. If there is a recording somewhere, we could uh, try to dug up at some point. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you. So uh, you mentioned uh, Tamara, Tamarilana, your, your daughter and the lead singer at uh, Ventanas. It's, it's a very prolific world music group here in Toronto. Can you talk a little bit about, like, uh, in the beginning of your career, probably even before you became a scholar, you were traveling and going to places. Can you talk a little bit about the beginnings of your interest in uh, learning about the music of different peoples? Sure. Well, I always, because I grew up in in French Canada, in an English-speaking Jewish family, so Mm -hmm. I always had those three anyway. Mm -hmm. Four, really, if you count Hebrew and Yiddish in terms of languages. So even though I didn't speak Hebrew or Yiddish, I always knew songs, you know, we learned them in summer camp, we learned them in Jewish Sunday school. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I always knew songs in Hebrew, I knew songs in Yiddish. I went out of my way to learn songs from Quebec and later on other parts of French Canada, because I lived there and I thought, well, I live here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course in English. So I don't really remember very well only knowing songs in English. I'm not sure I ever did Mm -hmm. only know, at least Mm -hmm. listen to. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd go to synagogue and there was a beautiful men's choir and they would sing in Hebrew. And... uh, my aunts didn't sing a lot in Yiddish, but they did sing a little bit in the Passover Seder. My grandfather and my uncles would vie in speed to see how fast they could sing through all the different parts oh. of the Seder. And then in summer camp, we learned actually about equal amounts of um, those songs from the civil rights movement and American protest songs and general folk songs. And they knew, knew at the time, because this was the 1950s and early 60s, the new songs that were coming out of Israel as folk songs. Hmm. Because they basically had to create a folk song tradition in oh. a country that, as a country, existed since 1948. Right. And so a whole folk song and dance tradition, which was... Many of the songs at the time had this kind of folk songy almost innocence about them. They were, you know, the shepherd and the shepherdess see each other and they fall in love. Or they were words from out of the Song of Songs, the Song mm-hmm. of Solomon, set to tunes that people adapted from either Eastern European or even local Druze, Bedouin, and, and uh, Arabic tunes. Mm-hmm. Really some beautiful stuff. So we learned all that at the same time. We, you know, it was all part of oh, what I learned as a kid. Then in uh, what started it all off in a way, in 1970, mm-hmm. this is a sort of unlikely story, but my good friend Edith, who was quite a bit older than I am, said that she wanted to go to Yugoslavia, it was still Yugoslavia at the time, mm-hmm. to see whether the Yugoslav guy, he was Serbian, but you said mm-hmm. Yugoslavian then, who had broken up with her in Montreal, was typical or whether he was an exception and they were really all nicer than he was. And we should really go to Yugoslavia, check out the country and, you know, see what people were like. So I was exactly 20. There was no internet, of course, but we went to the library, we looked up maps we looked up she looked up and told me all about the uh, the beautiful murals you know and, and the byzantine murals on some of the some of the old churches 
and we made a, a list between the two of us of where to go and, and her ex-boyfriend was only one small part of it really mm-hmm. we landed in Milan hitchhiked we had about a hundred dollars between the two of us for the summer which even then wasn't very much and we hitchhiked into Croatia there were a few people we into Slovenia first we made contact with we had somewhere to stay in Sarajevo and so on so we're there for two solid months and of course in Kosovo there were Albanians guitar women who were totally fascinating and we learned how the music was different in Croatia and in Serbia and in Bosnia and in Macedonia and so on and not as a scholar at all but just staying with people hitchhiking and having people talk to us you know, mm-hmm. we had a dictionary which we used. We knew a little bit of Russian from studying it, and uh, she knew German, I knew French, so, you know, one way or another we could pretty much Mm -hmm. get by, and I bought a cheap guitar, and I sang on the streets, I did a lot of busking, and, you know, we made some money that way, and I just gave it away at the end. Mm -hmm. And so that was what gave me the taste for it, and when I came back, I was all of a sudden, and don't forget, again, there's no internet. Yeah. There's no, Mm -hmm. not even a fax or a cell phone. (laughs) So I was like, all of a sudden, Judith, who knew about this music from Yugoslavia that nobody else knew anything about. Uh-huh. And then I started going to, I found out that you could learn Balkan dancing in Montreal from the wonderful Yves Moreau, um, who is still teaching it. He's still one of the people I really revere in Bulgarian dance and folklore and so on. And then we learned that you could go to New York City and learn Balkan songs from Ethel Rehm and from Lauren Brody and Carol Freeman and all these wonderful people. And we'd pile into a car, pre-seatbelt era. Mm-hmm. So we'd pile as many people as would fit into the one car owned by any of us hmm. and go down to New York and uh, have a weekend of learning songs, I mean, you know, Bulgarian, Croatian, Macedonian songs and dances and then coming back and performing them and teaching them. So that was kind of how I started. Uh-huh. And then after I did my um, my bachelor's at McGill, I decided, well, I'm just going to go back and travel because I really like this. Mm-hmm. So I turned down both job offers and scholarship offers. Mm-hmm. And I bought a one-way ticket, uh, to my mother's horror, I bought a one-way ticket to Paris Mm-hmm. and made no plans whatsoever besides the one-way ticket. And again, plans were complicated anyway because of no right. internet. And I just left. And I ended up in Spain where I wasn't going to go at all because it was a cliche and I didn't want to do cliches. Hmm. Then it got cold in Europe. And I said, well, I can buy a winter coat and spend a lot of time and money looking for places to stay inside with heating or I can go to Spain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thinking incorrectly that it would always be warm everywhere in the winter but you know it's not <laughs> but I remember when I looked out the window I had the end the dregs of a train pass and before that expired and I started hitching again looking out the window and seeing a castle for the first time and thinking in total mm. astonishment you mean there really are castles in Spain oh mm-hmm. and uh, that was during the Franco the last Franco years mm-hmm. so I was there during the end of the dictatorship wow. and staying in a Valencian Catalan speaking village hmm. where it was still forbidden to speak Catalan in public oh, wow. and the people I was with I was teaching French uh, in exchange for room and board and the people I was staying with who are all these idealistic young teachers were eventually arrested for speaking Valencian with their kids with oh, their wow. students um, and when that happened I mean it's a long complicated story in between I went to Morocco mm-hmm. for a month so I remember getting to Morocco on the boat and hearing music on the street and thinking, oh my God, where, where's this been all my life? This is wonderful. But the people I was with on the boat, who were Americans, Dutch, you know, from all over, were busy buying dope right away. And I didn't even know what it was because it was this little kid yelling, Kif, Kif, you know, 10 sous le gram, 10 cents a gram. <laughs> and they were all rushing off to buy it. And I was saying, what is that? And one of them, I remember clearly said, well, what did you come to Morocco for? <laughs> Then I went back to Spain and stayed in the village for a while. And then when they were arrested for, um, some of them were arrested and many more of them lost their certificates of good behavior, <laughs> Certificado de Buena Conducta. Mm-hmm. Um, they were apparently looking for me. They said they were going to look for me because I was selling drugs, which I thought was pretty funny because I don't even know how to light a cigarette still. <laughs> like, I yeah. really literally don't. Mm-hmm. And, but they said, well, you have long hair and you look like a hippie and mm-hmm. you're a Canadian. Well, they said American, same deal yeah. from what they knew. So I remember I had seen 
an ad, and I think Brenna knows this is mm. one of my classic things. I had seen an ad in Barcelona for boats to Turkey, to Istanbul. Oh. And they were really cheap if you had a student card, and I had a fake student card at that point because mm-hmm. I wasn't a student anymore. Yeah. I said McGill University Valencia or something. And so I went out to Barcelona and for about the equivalent of $20 today, bought a one-way ticket to Turkey, to Istanbul. And I stayed there for two months without a camera, which of course, you know... Tragic, yeah. Probably the thing I regret most maybe in my entire life is not mm-hmm. having a camera that year in Spain and Morocco and Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, and after two months in Turkey, I went back up through the Balkans and eventually ended up in Scotland and the Hebrides Islands and then eventually back home. But that was a whole year. Oh, wow. And that kind of did it for the travel bug. I was caught. I mm-hmm. was infected. The travel bug was there to stay. Mm-hmm. And uh, I first started learning about, well, I got interested, of course, in music in different parts of Spain mm-hmm. and, and Portugal because they were so misunderstood. Everybody thought everything in Spain was flamenco and everything mm-hmm. in Spain in Portugal was fado. Mm-hmm. So I got really interested in that uh, for quite a while. And then, of course, the Balkan music, Jewish music. And then I did a master's degree in medieval studies, and I looked at women musicians among Muslims, Christians, and Jews in Spain before it was cool, Mm -hmm. and before the internet was available. Mm -hmm. And I would do it quite differently now, but it was very exciting to do, and at the time I had a medieval women's ensemble. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's how the academic career really started, because I had the ensemble first. And we were only a women's group by chance. We actually had a man in the beginning, and he just moved. He left Canada. Mm-hmm. And one day somebody said, oh, it's so cool. You have this women's medieval group. And we looked around at each other and went, Judith, Susan, Ariane, Michelle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, we have a medieval women's group. <laughs> and then, you know, it's, it's kind of embarrassing to say that we had as few men as possible just because it sold better as a women's yes. group at the time mm-hmm. in the 70s. Yeah, still today. But we needed men sometimes for certain parts, and so we always said they were guest artists. Mm-hmm. Some, and, you know, it's really embarrassing to say this, maybe I shouldn't, but when possible, oh. they were gay men, because that yeah. went over better in the feminist community. And huh. yeah. um, it was great. We had some wonderful musicians, and I still have all the recordings. We didn't make any recordings, but we recorded all our concerts. So when people started saying, but did women really play this music in the Middle Ages? First I said unthinkingly, yes, of course, why wouldn't they? Yeah. And then I thought, okay, I'll do a master's. Uh-huh. So that's when I did my master's in uh, Sciences Médiévales at the Université de Montréal mm-hmm. and uh, worked with a wonderful, wonderful old priest scholar who had set up the library, the medieval library, Père Giguère. Mm-hmm. We would sit there with stacks of, of uh, dictionaries in Latin and old Galaico Portuguese and mm. concordances and a microfiche machine and a few mm. facsimile editions, and we'd go through, and he was my paleography hmm. teacher, my medieval paleography teacher, and we'd just go through stacks and stacks of things, hmm. and uh, Elisabeth Schulze-Bussacker, who had done one PhD in medieval German and one in medieval French and Provençal, and hmm. classes, I mean, when I think back on this, classes had three people in them, hmm. and other professors would come and sit in on the classes out of sheer interest and to learn something. Mm-hmm. You know, those were the days. Oh, I can't wow. even believe that was happening. Those were the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And then after I did that, um, I met the wonderful, legendary scholar of, I'm going to say medieval Spanish, but that's really just such a detail, mm-hmm. of medieval everything and Sephardic folk literature and many other things, Samuel Armistead. Okay. And I met him just because I saw one of his books on the new shelf at the McGill Library. Mm-hmm. And I took it home and I read it, and it was about early 20th century Sephardic practice in Salonika, Thessaloniki. Mm-hmm. And I wrote him a fan letter, as mm-hmm. in, Dear Professor Armistead, I think your book is really brilliant and I'd like to meet you. And I'm doing a master's in, you know, or this, this, and this. And he wrote back and said, Well, have you read this, 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 and this for your master's? You really should read this, this, that, and that. And if you can't get this, I'll make sure you get photocopies. And I thought, Who is this? I said, mm-hmm. do you need someone else on your committee? I'm happy to be the extra person on your committee. Don't worry if they don't have a budget. You know, it's very interesting what you're doing. Oh, cool. Then mm-hmm. I learned, you know, later on that he was like this for everyone. And every single person you talk to talks about how he helped them and how he helped them get through this degree, that degree. Mm-hmm. And then I eventually met him and he said, well, when you finish your master's, you really should switch to a degree that allows you to work in Sephardic music because it needs you. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, cool. So if it's ethnomusicology or it's anything like that. And then I found out that someone in Montreal, that Oroana Orilibrovich, was looking for people to join a Sephardic group she was setting up, the one that became Jerry Naldo, mm-hmm. that yeah. at the time Tamara wasn't even thought of yet. But <laughs> then she sang with it when she was four and five in oh, its great. last yeah. active years. And then 20 years later, when we sang again for a few years, just now, 2014, mm-hmm. 15, she sang again with us as an adult. Cool. So it was kind of cool. Can Can you define just because possibly some people won't be that much into know exactly those terms? Can you define like Sephardic music? Like from what I know, it's like music from Spain, but it's from a Jewish background. Is that correct? How would you define yeah, it? Yeah, it's pretty tricky because it means two things. It means, as you say, from loosely speaking Spain, yes. mm-hmm. but it also means incorrectly and inaccurately but popularly almost anything that's not Ashkenazi Jewish oh, okay. mm-hmm. and a lot of things in between so Sefarad we don't know where it originally referred to it shows up in the Old Testament as a place name like, mm-hmm. it says and those Jews that are in Sefarad we don't really know where it was it mm-hmm. might have been Sardis but it was somewhere in the putative in the so-called Middle East you know mm-hmm. but at least for a very long time, from for close to 2,000 years, it's been used popularly to refer to at least part of the Iberian Peninsula. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily all of it. Of course. Like first the part that we think of as Andalusia now and so on. So eventually it came to refer to basically all of what today is Spain and Portugal. Mm-hmm. So when they were, the Jews were expelled first from... Actually three times, which a lot of people don't realize. The big mm-hmm. expulsion in 1492. 1492, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is... Uh, the main one, but then five years later from Portugal. So oh. many of the Jews who had taken refuge in Portugal were then expelled from Portugal. Oh. Uh, and not until 1498 from the Kingdom of Navarra in the north, in, in the northeast of Spain. So actually they were legally Jews in the Iberian Peninsula till the end of 1498, oh. which most people don't realize. But after 1498, that was it. They couldn't be there legally as Jews. They could Many of them were hidden Jews or mm-hmm. crypto Jews, and they're the ones that I've been working with in Portugal since the mid nineties, mid nineteen nineties. And but the ones who left became later on. They weren't even known as Sephardic right away, but they became known as Sephardic Jews because they were distinguished in this way. From on the one hand, the Jews of Ashkenaz, which is commonly, basically, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. uh, Yiddish speaking where my family was from. Mm-hmm. Well, they were actually from Northern Europe, from the Baltics, but mm-hmm. same idea. Uh, but also the other group is Mizrahim from the East. There you go, you're East and West again. <laughs> but this means the Jews, for example, who never left the country that is now Iraq, who never left Mesopotamia, mm-hmm. never left Babylonia, right. who stayed there. Um, the Jews of Iran, the, the Jews of all these countries, of Egypt, you know. Italy has a whole collection of Jews that have been there since about 2,000 years also, since before the division between Ashkenazim and, mm-hmm. and Sephardim. That's, the im is the Hebrew plural. Mm-hmm. So one person who is Sephardic as a noun, two or three or four Sephardim. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. And it's often incorrectly used to sort of mean anybody from any of these places. Mm-hmm. So you might incorrectly say that Jewish culture from Baghdad is Sephardic. Oh, I see. But then it gets double complicated because when you talk about India, for example, when you talk about Mumbai, there is a long-standing Jewish community there from, again, I'm using 2,000 loosely. I'm yes. Thinking, mm-hmm. You know, it's now yeah, more yeah. like 2,150 or something, but mm-hmm. 2,000-ish mm-hmm. years. But then after the expulsion from Spain and Portugal, several Sephardic, Sephardic Jews did arrive in Mumbai and oh. also in the south and pretty much assimilated. You know, it's been a long time since they've spoken anything related to Spanish or Portuguese. Mm-hmm. But there was that Sephardic component that entered at some point. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's a very nebulous kind of term. So the ones that it's easiest to identify as really coming from this uh, Sefarad, Spain and Portugal, mm-hmm. late 15th century culture, and mm-hmm. a little bit later as hidden Jews, as Maranos, but regaining their identity as Jews when they arrived in Thessaloniki mm-hmm. or Amsterdam or wherever. Uh, are the ones in today's Turkey, mm-hmm. uh, and loosely speaking the Balkans, and today's Morocco, northern Morocco, not not southern Morocco really. Mm-hmm. 
and and they were other places, but they pretty much coalesced into those areas where they kept on speaking what's popularly called Ladino, and I'm not going to go into the mm -hmm. whole academic discussion of what's Ladino and what's Judeo-Spanish and what's Judesmo and Jaquetia and so on, but, mm -hmm. you know. It's very inside baseball in that specific yeah. uh, area. Uh -huh. But those are, you know, the areas where they maintained, I guess, the most um, easily identifiable culture. But the music, so the other misconception is that the music must be, you know, medieval Spanish music or whatever, and it's not. It's not at all. It changes as much as music anywhere does. So mm -hmm. in any tradition, right, you have strains of that tradition that are older and strains that are newer mm -hmm. and things that change all the time because people are people and it's mm -hmm. really outside the world of scholarship. Most people aren't too fussy about where their good tunes come from. If they're good tunes, they're good tunes. Mm -hmm. um, so you have two kind of strands of Sephardic songs. You don't really have Sephardic music in the sense of instrumental music like klezmer. You can play anything you like on any instrument. Mm -hmm. It's not an issue. And you can be Sephardic or you can play a Sephardic song on an instrument without singing it. It's not a problem. Mm -hmm. But there's not a specific instrumental repertoire. Okay. Um, so it's not like klezmer where you have a whole instrumental repertoire, some of which is connected to Yiddish folk song or Hebrew folk song tunes or Romanian or other mm -hmm. tunes, and some of which just are instrumental tunes. You don't have that. So Sephardic songs... There's an older strain, which not very many people sing. I sing it. It's a lot of the old narrative ballads and some of the wedding songs and so on. This is the older strain, and it's basically, I wouldn't say disappeared, because disappeared is a big, heavy word, but mm -hmm. it's to a large extent eroded mm -hmm. from popular live tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and in those cases, the words are often very old. They could be, some of them are from pre-expulsion Spain and Portugal, some of them are from just around then or from just after, maybe when uh, hidden Jews, when the new Christians who are taking over again their identities, Jews brought with them from the 16th or 17th centuries, we don't really know. But they're older anyway. But the tunes aren't. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what tunes were their original tunes. Right. Because presumably, you know, in the boat... They sang whatever they were singing, and it wasn't going to be the same tune anyway if you were from Barcelona or Valencia or you know, mm -hmm. any other place. There were going to be different tunes. Mm -hmm. But presumably they were singing whatever they learned from their mothers and their grandmothers and so on. And then when they got to wherever they were going, they probably kept those tunes around for another generation or so. We really don't know. Mm -hmm. And then someone said, ah, it actually works really well with this tune. Uh. It works really, really, really well with that tune. And actually, you know, I just heard this Turkish guy... As, or the Turkish women sing a song that sort of had a story that was a little bit like that, but it was different, and it went like this, and it, you know, mm -hmm. this tune. So the tunes changed, and the wedding tunes changed almost completely, and we know this because you'll get very similar lyrics with, you know, a Bulgarian rhythm in 9-8, or Turkish rhythm in 9-8, and it doesn't fit yeah. the words, it kind of tortures the words, because <laughs> they're Spanish um, accents, and they don't work at all with those you know, Slavic or Turkish rhythms. Yeah. And then the same, not identical words, but the similar words with it, the same theme for the wedding, say, or for a ballad, will be sung in Morocco with a Moroccan rhythm or free rhythm and a totally different tune. And then hardly anybody sings those anymore anyway. Or they make, you know, like Ventanas, for example, they'll sing one or two out of their repertoire. So what most people sing in Sephardic songs are the love songs and some topical songs. And these are mostly from the late 19th century on. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And in some cases we actually know, not from my personal scholarship, but other scholars who have who've done the, the legwork. Uh, José Manuel Pepe Pedrosa was one of the first people to really look at that closely. So you had interesting phenomena. And this is not a put-down, and I say this all the time. A good song is a good song. Yes. A good song from 1890 is a good song from 1890, and a good song from 1990 is a good song from mm -hmm. 1990, and if you write a terrific song tomorrow, then it's a terrific song that you wrote, you yeah. know, this week. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not a put-down at all, um, but it's a misconception. Mm -hmm. So what you had very often in, uh, say, the 1890s in Istanbul, which was a very cosmopolitan city, mm -hmm. first of all, the upper class, upper social economic class, knew French. Mm -hmm. You didn't know French, you were nobody. So anything that came in from France was really cool. Mm -hmm. And then they also had touring artists from Spain, from Spain at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, in France, particularly also in Spain, and among the Spanish people in northern Morocco, because northern Morocco was under the Spanish protectorate 
for the first half, basically the first half of the 20th century, mm-hmm. basically 1912, I think, to around 1960. So a lot of stuff came in that way too. So you had Argentinian tango, mm-hmm. you had um, Maurice Chevalier, you had you know popular French tunes, popular Spanish artists, and they traveled. They went on tour, mm-hmm. and the the Jews of uh, especially Constantinople and Salonika, who were very, very cosmopolitan, went to these concerts and they learned the songs. Mm-hmm. They heard them and they, there's one wonderful letter from the 1890s uh, which describes a Jewish man from, I can't remember, I think it was Istanbul, Constantinople, saying to another friend of his or his cousin, oh, the Spanish singer came and she was wonderful. We're going to go again. We're going to bring our mothers this time because they're so excited that they can understand the Spanish uh-huh. so they can listen to the songs and learn them. So there's a whole repertoire that is from this exciting new 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, these exciting new songs, you know. Mm-hmm. And the recording industry starts in Istanbul very, very early, like 1906, I believe. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So right away, you can start listening to recordings of all these people. And it was a status symbol, too. Like if you owned, you counted, you know, you had X number of records uh, from French artists, from Spanish artists, and they started recording local Sephardic artists very, very early on. Mm-hmm. Men, mostly, more than women. And they were often, they were always actually men who were cantors in the synagogue, so very highly trained in synagogue music, but also in Turkish music. Oh, interesting. Mm. In Ottoman singing. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, the Israeli musicologist Edwin Sarusi, who just actually won the Israel Prize for his contributions. Okay. Mm-hmm. He calls it Ottoman Hebrew music. Huh. And it's cool. because it's all vocal, but it uses instrumental versions of Ottoman music oh. you know, mm-hmm. in the synagogue. Oh, so that's they, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, so there was a lot of, you know, of, uh, of uh, musical trading mm-hmm. going on. And some of it was, as I said, I had women who were born in 1915, 16, and who would say to me, oh, yes, you know, we had X number of records at home. Huh. And if we didn't have a record by so-and-so, we could go over to Sarah's house and her father would have a record, you know, and we'd sit and listen to it. Mm-hmm. So they, And then the radio came in, you know, a little bit later. And nobody had any issues about learning music from popular singers, from recordings when they were available, from wherever. Good music around, you learn good music, just like today. You know? mm-hmm. If they had had the internet and MP3s, I'm sure it would have <laughs> developed quite differently. So the language is one form or another of what scholars call Judeo-Spanish, mm-hmm. you know, and then the music can be anything. And we don't know what the oldest tunes are. There are tunes that sound more archaic and are mm-hmm. probably much older or who have, or which have a general melodic contour, similarity to certain Renaissance tunes that were written down with ballads mm-hmm. and, you know, might be to some extent a survival at least of at least when of, say that's 16, early 16th century tunes or a little bit before we just don't know but those are the minority mm-hmm. like the small minority uh, most of the others are and the reason they're so easy to learn is because they are late 19th century tunes right you know they fit right into and if they have a nice little eastern so-called eastern i guess i can't do air quotations because it's a podcast, but you know, there should be a, some kind of verbal signal for podcasts and for audio recordings for Quote air quotations. Quote, I don't know. Or, but, you yeah. know it's Eastern, clear. If they have a little Eastern, as it were, mm-hmm. um, sound to them, they're still a Western construction and general melodic contour mm-hmm. and, and so on. Yeah. And some of the early ones that were based on Turkish and Greek tunes did still use the old makans. Mm-hmm. Um, and you hear that in some of the older recordings. Mm-hmm. But they also kind of disappeared. Um, one of the reasons they disappeared was, well, first of all, Makam is difficult, and not everybody's going to learn it, but also because the first songbooks that were published of Sephardic songs in the 1960s and 70s um, were published by Yitzhak Levi, the father of Yasmin Levi. And what he did is he took out anything that related to microtones. Oh, Not going to say quarter tones, uh-huh. because makam is much more yeah, it's complicated microtone. than yeah, yeah. quarter tones. I mean, that was an invention, basically, of the 1932 Cairo Congress. Mm-hmm. But he basically took out the microtones. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people initially learned those songs from his songbooks. Mm-hmm. And because he was from that culture and he grew up in it, people figured, well, it's, you know, 
air quotes, air quotes, authentic. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. That's, <laughs> um, uh-huh. And they were, except that he sort of cleaned up a lot of the rhythmic patterns, the uh, makam disappeared totally. He himself was a beautiful singer and he performed a lot of them, but on fretted guitar and piano. Yeah. Not altered piano or prepared piano or, you know, mm-hmm. unfretted guitar, anything right. like that. So basically he westernized them. And uh-huh. so did Alberto Hemsi. Um, who published in the 1930s, who published a selection of songs from his family, in fact, a lot of them from Thessaloniki, mm-hmm. but with piano arrangements. Oh, wow. And these were the most influential uh, sources for people to learn from. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that, A, the more recent repertoire of, of uh, love songs and general songs survived a lot more than the old narrative ballads and life cycle songs. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated story. Yeah, no, but it's... And also the context for the old ballads. And when I say ballad, I'm saying narrative ballad not to confuse it with a popular term ballad. Mm -hmm. I mean, a song that tells a story. You know, the king got up Mm -hmm. and went to see the queen and -and so-and-so cut so-and-so's head off. (laughs) You know, ballads. Yes. Narrative ballads. (laughs) The ones that in English are referred to as child ballads, Mm catalogued by Francis James Child. Not Mm -hmm. for children. Mm -hmm. I mean, not specifically for children. And... Right, so the context of the ballad was very often either, you know, domestic work, you were taking care of your baby, or you were getting supper ready, or sewing something that was finicky. And very often you were sitting with other women, and they would exchange a ballad, you would sing one, they would say, oh, I heard it sung a little bit differently from my daughter-in-law's aunt, or that reminds me of when I haven't, you know, and they would pass a whole evening or an afternoon that way. And the wedding songs, the wedding wasn't just a day. Mm -hmm. So you had songs for when... Uh, the bride put out all of the embroidery and so on for her trousseau, and the women of the neighborhood would come and they'd criticize it and say, this should be sewn better, and, oh, this is great embroidery, or, you know, my cousin's daughter does it better, or this is the best I've seen, whatever. But there were songs for that. There were songs for every stage of the wedding over, you know, 10 days or two weeks. Not just, okay, you've come down the aisle and we've played the march on the piano, and, you know, we'll have the reception with the band and the DJ soon. Mm-hmm. So all these occasions, all these musical occasions, we call them in ethnomusicology, mm-hmm. is a classic term, musical occasion. Uh, all these musical occasions, many of them have disappeared. Mm. You know, I used to record uh, ballads in the senior citizens, the Sephardic senior citizens Club Fraternité in Montreal, mm-hmm. and they would be singing while they played bingo. Ha-ha. <laughs> you know, so you'd get these really funny uh, things where they'd be, singing a song, like they go, you know, En la ciudad de Toledo, en la ciudad de... Base was on 19, Granada, c'est 19, j'ai gagné, mm-hmm. and they would go on like this, and as in one recording, it's hilarious, because as the bingo game gets more exciting, it speeds up. This, the, here is my ethnomusicological <laughs> observation. This, the tempo actually accelerated, and the pitch rose. <laughs> It's hilarious. <laughs> but these are the kinds of things ethnomusicologists love because they combine musical analysis with the human social context. So there's actually an illustration of what you asked me a while ago about ethnomusicology. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's that, that's uh, that's fantastic. One more thing I wanted to to ask you is. So your research today, I know you were like focused on uh, Sephardic music and you talk, we talked extensively about that. And then uh, what is your like research and interest today? What's the, let's say, either not necessarily the next frontier of what you're going to do, but what is the thing that is uh, either travel bug wise or <laughs> like uh, in terms of like scholarship, what is interesting you or, or intriguing you these days? Okay, well, travel bug is always there. So that's, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you invite me, I'll go kind of mm-hmm. thing. Okay. I re- if I could afford to just go anywhere, I'd dump everything and just travel, but I can't do that. Um, I don't drop anything, so I still work in Sephardic music contexts and you know, also in what's happening today in Sephardic music and how it's changing and new songs that are developing and what's Sephardic about them, for example. Mm-hmm. I never will stop, I hope, doing the work on music among the hidden Jews of Portugal. It's really close to mm-hmm. my heart. And that's changing a lot too. They used to be really closed off even 20 and a bit, 23, 24 years ago when I first started working with them. Mm-hmm. And now the ones who were babies at the time are young adults and they're all on Facebook. So oh. it's changed completely. The whole idea of secrecy and, you know, doing things in secret and not telling people what you're doing and, mm-hmm. and fooling ethnomusicologists 
having uh-huh. spent several centuries fooling the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. You know, that's changed completely because the circumstances are so different, but they still are who they are, and so I still work with them. I got sidetracked for a few years and I started working on the square drum, the Portuguese-Spanish yes. square drum, and I published quite a few articles about that mm-hmm. and the repertoire that goes with it. Mm-hmm. And then I also, as you probably know, are, I'm the consultant for the Alan Lomax mm-hmm. Spanish recordings. So mm-hmm. it was a year where I was the first Alan Lomax fellow at the Library of Congress and then editing his field diary, but interspersing it with my own experiences following up his recordings. Oh, cool. All right. And, and I'm still doing that and also trying to find a publisher for it. Mm-hmm. And so all that is still happening all the time. And lately I've been... First, on the one hand, looking at the whole ICH, Intangible Cultural Heritage, issue from UNESCO mm-hmm. and how it affects certain practices in areas that I know best, which are in Spain and Portugal. Mm-hmm. So things like the medieval Christmas Eve song of the Sibyl, Prophecy of the Sibyl in Mallorca, and how that's changed since it was declared Intangible Cultural Heritage, for example. Huh. Things like that. And on the other hand, comparing Yiddish and Sephardic ballads, narrative ballads, and mm-hmm. seeing... What they have in common, not so much, not so much from the music standpoint, is from the what's important in terms of themes, you mm-hmm. know, content. Mm-hmm. So, so all these things I'm kind of doing together, but also, you know, teaching part time at York and trying yeah. to cobble a living together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. One thing that, that I think we, we should mention, because it's very interesting that you just uh, mentioned that of people fooling ethnomusicologists, uh, and I think that <laughs> relates a little bit to this possibly naive or romantic quest for quote-unquote in air quotes uh, authentic that sometimes people go into certain places and they think that they are this impartial observer when it's like no i know you're here i know you're possibly from uh, a land with uh, means so so can you talk a little bit about that because i think that's a very interesting yeah people have it's a very tricky thing right because ethnomusicology is based a tremendous amount on ethics and really sincerely, like we, mm-hmm. ethics because we believe in ethics. Mm-hmm. And some of it's really, really easy. Like you don't take an artifact away from people or if you, you know, or, or you don't record anybody without their knowledge and their permission. You don't hide a recording device, even when it's tempting, mm-hmm. under your sleeve and, you know, go home and say, haha, I recorded them when they didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And so that, that kind of stuff is easy. But there are other areas like this one where, you know, what do you say about people that you know have deliberately deceived you for whatever reason mm-hmm. you know it's it's a really tricky topic but the um the sephardim in that sense were pretty easy to work with because over the many years i've worked with them the vast majority are cooperative just because you know they're okay people and they're fine mm-hmm. with that mm-hmm. and either they say i'd love to help you but i really don't know any songs or i'd love to help you but i've had bronchitis and i can't sing but my friend so and so here's mm-hmm. her phone number let's call her up now or they just say, I'm not interested, which is rare, but they might. Mm-hmm. So that's easy. But mm-hmm. the hidden Jews, I mean, their entire survival for the past several hundred years has been, well, it isn't anymore, but it was for hundreds of years based on telling untruths and prevarications and half-truths or outright lies, but as a survival strategy, like physical life survival. Mm-hmm. And it. It's not so much anymore because this is this generation and it's the internet generation, but even when I first started working with them in the 90s, and Tamara will remember this, she was a little girl at the time, but I'm sure she'll remember, I kept saying, I mean, I'm not sure about what so-and-so said. Well, mm-hmm. let's go back next year and ask. Like, people kept saying to me, why do you go back to the same people over and over again? Partly because I liked them, mm-hmm. and some of them became close friends, and I didn't want them to think, because it wasn't true, I didn't want them to think that I only went to them as sources for my academic work. Um, Mm -hmm. But also partly because bit by bit they trusted me more and I could rely more on what they were saying. Mm -hmm. But I also couldn't publish all of it. Not because it was so secret or so delicate, but because they just didn't want it. Mm -hmm. I see. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's a tricky topic. But then you also get much more, much clearer situations where people are very, very aware of what's folkloric and what, you know, goes over very well as folkloric, and so they exaggerate it and they present it in a different way, mm-hmm. or they even deliberately, you know, hype up their their folk costumes mm-hmm. or their dances. And in Spain, this was done a lot in the Franco during the Franco years, the Franco decades, by what was called the Sección Femenina, 
the women's brigade, basically. Mm -hmm. So there's some great stuff. They went around and did a lot of good stuff uh, with relation to hygiene, for example, and medical, like nursing knowledge and education and so mm -hmm. on. Like really great stuff. But they also messed around a lot with local folklore. So they mm -hmm. would go into a village and say, well, you know, their costumes here really aren't very interesting. Let's borrow some elements from this other area uh -huh. and add them. Or their dance isn't very interesting. Let's let's uh, make the choreography a little bit more interesting. Mm -hmm. And the music too. And they'd sort of move things around a bit. Mm -hmm. So... It's really in many ways what's happening often today is a continuation of that folklorization mm -hmm. attitude. And it's not always, you know, the sort of big bad us doing it to them. I think we have to give people more credit than that. People yes. are not so passive. It's not, we can't go and do things at people as easily mm -hmm. as we seem to give our yeah. Our wicked selves credit for, you know. Like, yeah, no, that, 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 that's great. And that's the, well, uh, it's very interesting. I didn't know specifically about all the, like, all the mixing that happened with, uh, like, Sephardic music specifically in, uh, in uh, Turkey. Oh, but what it isn't, I should say, hmm? is there's also a popular misconception that flamenco and Sephardic music are both from the same, you mm. know, mystical, medieval Spanish source. And mm -hmm. people have come up with all kinds of stories, you know, the, the I'm not going to say the Roma, because they don't call themselves Roma, the right. Gitanos, mm -hmm. or in Portuguese, the Ciganos. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, helped the Sephardim escape over the border from Spain to Portugal, which they may have, or they may not have. They may have. But while so doing, they learned all the songs that the rabbis sang in improvised synagogues in the caves and so on. This is not likely. Mm -hmm. And this became flamenco. Um, nothing's impossible that isn't documented. However, there are things that are unlikely. Right. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, what is much more likely is, for example, the, the uh, Gitanos and the last remnants of so-called Moorish culture mm -hmm. lived in the same neighborhoods of Granada mm -hmm. in the 17th, 18th centuries. In fact, the word Zambra is directly related. Mm -hmm. And it's far more likely that there was a lot of musical and dance interaction between them, mm -hmm. you know, later on, which is starting to get close from when flamenco, as we know it, develops. Mm -hmm. Right. But there also is the Mediterranean confusion. There's any number of Mediterranean musical traits that you know, because you do a lot of this music, mm -hmm. that have to do with vocal ornamentation and vocal timbre, how you place your voice, and singing one basic melody with a heterophonic accompaniment, mm -hmm. in other words, the oud or whatever yeah. instrument plays basically mm -hmm. the same thing, but in a different way. Yeah. You add ornaments, mm -hmm. You, if it's a bowed instrument, you can have longer notes, if it's a plucked instrument, you repeat a lot of short notes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very complex, but it's not complex in that vertical harmonic style yeah. that has been part of... Western art music, you know, since the really since the late Middle Ages, yeah. um, it's in a totally different style. And mm -hmm. this is found in a lot of med I'm not going to say all because you have of you know, Corsican harmony and and so on. But it's found in a lot of Mediterranean cultures. So who's to say which came first? You know, mm -hmm. did Jews, Muslims, Christians, did Berbers, uh, mm -hmm. Persians, Baghdadis? Like who had it first? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It's a pretty widespread series of musical traits. So in that sense, yes, there are a lot of similarities between not only certain aspects of Sephardic music and flamenco, but as well certain aspects of Greek music and Ottoman music and mm -hmm. Southern French singing or Southern Italian singing, and Tunisian singing and so on. And, you know, deite tu a saber, go figure. <laughs> Who came first? Yeah, and, and that's, that's interesting, this quest for... I don't know, like this elusive authenticity. The, at least to me, the thing that seems to be the the only thing pure is the mix. Is that people actually mix things around and music travels. And uh, if you try to say to freezing time or at least try to claim like authorship of a specific thing, you have to invoke basically all the history of humanity, right? It's, yeah, uh, I mean, it's hard. Sometimes you do yeah. know. There are Sephardic songs, for example, that one can say, this is based on the French song popularized by so-and-so in 1905. Mm -hmm. Easy. Mm -hmm. But there's others that you, well, most of them that you can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. great. And the one last thing, like, just as we're talking, like, until very recently, uh, music traveled at most at the speed of a horse, later <laughs> at the speed of maybe at a boat, it was a bit faster, uh, and then by cars, and now it's basically instantaneous, right? So how do you see, like, 
the internet playing a role in the way that people yeah. like anything you want to it's say funny, about that? I say that to students and audiences all the time. Like you have to remember that when you traveled somewhere, you know, it wasn't Ryanair. Like you had to stay <laughs> places along the way. If you were going any further than the next village, mm -hmm. you had to stay somewhere. And if you were taking a long trip, if it was the Crusades, you know, when you were going on a crusade to Jerusalem. Uh, to rescue Jerusalem from the Saracens and mm -hmm. you know the pagans. Well, it was going to take you six months, and you were going to, if it was by land, you were going to stay in an awful lot of different places and hear a lot of languages and, you know, mm -hmm. eat a lot of different food and hear a lot of different music. And you were going to hear it more than one day because it took you a long time to travel through what is today X country, you know, what today is Czech Republic or what today is Romania or Syria mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. It was uh, people absorbed music really, really differently. Mm -hmm. And it's also a mistake to think it didn't travel, just it traveled more slowly, but it traveled. All the mm -hmm. pilgrims who went on pilgrimage to holy sites of either Islam or Christianity, again, they came from far away, they walked or they rode, as you said, at the most a horse, <laughs> um, or a very slow, reluctant donkey, but whatever. <laughs> you know, they, they arrived going through, the, bringing cultures with them and going through many different cultures. Mm-hmm. They just do it an awful lot faster today. And, you know, on the one hand, you can learn a lot more and people who take the time to learn a lot more, like, you know, you and the musicians you're working with and mm -hmm. many other wonderful musicians and dancers and artists. But on the other hand, if you're not the kind of person who does it, it's very, very superficial in mm -hmm. a way that it almost couldn't be before because you just spent more time on it, whether you wanted to or not. Right. Mm -hmm. so, but, yeah. I, you know, like, I guess the older I get, the less, the more I try not to make value judgments, so I'm not so sure I'm successful. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. To me, it's like it's easier to be super profound and transcendent, and easy to be very shallow as well, right? So uh, I guess it's uh, it has advantages and disadvantages. But I'm very happy to be able to go on the internet, talk to like if you have four friends, they're musicians, you will find someone that knows something about the thing you were looking for. Oh, it's for. amazing. I mean, I can even do it in the history of courses. The very first course I took, I audited in, uh, was it called World Music, I guess, or Music of the World or something like that. It was in the <laughs> early 70s mm -hmm. at Concordia, when I think it was still called Sir George Williams mm -hmm. in Montreal. And it was a piano teacher, a virtuoso piano teacher, Phil Cohen. And mm -hmm. He would come into the class with a stack of vinyls. We didn't call them vinyls, we called them records. Mm -hmm. With a stack, a heavy stack, every single class of vinyls that he could barely carry. He would go to the library, or his own house, mm -hmm. or both, and he would come to class and he wore these rumpled sort of piano teacher suits. Mm -hmm. And he would put them on and he would listen himself in such a way that we had to listen more just watching him listen if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And so physically, that was yeah. how we listened to those. He had to hunt down those records and then physically gather them up from his own house and from the library and then carry them to the classroom, make sure the record player was there. You know, mm -hmm. it came on a cart that then had to be carted out. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then there were cassettes and then you had to do conferences. I remember transferring music from cassette to cassette and setting it up so that they heard... 30 seconds of this and 20 seconds of that, but it still had to be either in this order, mm -hmm. or at one point I inherited a bunch of um, two minutes or three minutes on each side cassettes from folk dancing. Mm -hmm. And I bring like a whole stack of those so I didn't have to go like wind forward and back, especially for conferences, you know. And then, as you know, it was CDs and the, the rather short lived DAT <laughs> and the yeah. mini mm -hmm. CDs, which were mercifully even more short lived. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, click, and there you are. Yeah. So I guess since I started doing all this quite a long time ago, I've lived through each step, and I can't say for one minute that I regret having it easy now. Like, I used to carry hmm. kilos and kilos of equipment with me mm -hmm. every time I, you know, I went to do field work, and that was already fewer kilos than I would have had to carry 20 years earlier. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, you've got your phone plugged in now. Yeah. Yeah. And I do that too. Like I said for the first few years of smartphones, I said, no, 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 I'll never give up using my real video camera <laughs> and my yeah. real camera camera. Mm -hmm. Just now, I, I'm just going to, I'm just going to use my phone for this one thing just now, <laughs> but I'm not going to use it. Well, except for this other thing, I'm not going to, well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it, it's fantastic how it makes everything easier and uh yeah now you can yeah. get cards with like you used to be able to 
think you were doing really well if you got eight gigabytes on a memory um, card and like yeah it's virtually that's so old school yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> cool if people want to contact you like or take a look at the work you're doing uh should i put a link to your york university profile um, what's the best way to contact you well yeah it's tricky i'm actually working under construction i'm trying to set up a new website okay mm-hmm. uh, actually tomorrow's been helping me with this and carlos mm-hmm. but it, it's not even at the stage where you open it up and it says under construction. Oh, I see. Because okay. I do have mm-hmm. the one at York, but it's on a very old platform uh-huh. and one of those really annoying things to update. Mm-hmm. So I haven't I updated it in a very, very long time. And mm-hmm. at this point, York is such a precarious situation that mm-hmm. I better just, you know, yeah. get a website and have cool. done with it. Yeah. Um, but my Facebook page, they can hook up with me on Facebook, okay. but they can just write me an email at yeah, at, yeah. Know, I will. I will put like uh, those links on the like show the notes emails. for Facebook. What I'll do maybe is give you a Gmail, which is not likely to disappear. The York one might disappear, point, but I'll give <laughs> for you sure. a Gmail yeah. that. Yeah, and we'll put that on the on the show notes, and uh, and anyone can write to my email. It's not yeah. a big deal. That's great. Cool. Or hook up to Facebook. Judith, thank you so much thank for you. being in the podcast. It Thanks was a lot of fun. Asking great questions oh, and, I... and laughing at all the right times. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I did it again. <laughs> cool, Judith. Thank you so much. <laughs> So that's it for today's show. Thank you for listening to the Wanderings podcast. You can find show notes and links at pedrobonato.com slash podcast. If you like the show, I would love if you could share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on all social media at Pedro Bonato. I would love to hear from you. You can find my photography work at pedrobonato.com. The music for the Wanderings podcast is provided by the Blue Dot Ensemble, a music and dance group exploring traditions from all over the planet, where I am one of the founders and the lead drummer. You can find us at bluedotensemble.com. So tune in next week for another show. Until then, I urge you to keep following your curiosity, and I'm looking forward to our next Wanderings together. Bye.